0: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
4: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. My guest uh, this hour is a neurosurgeon with the uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and um, is uh, who specializes in minimally invasive spine surgery. And he is the author of a new book. It's uh, from the Mayo Clinic. It's the Mayo Clinic Guide to Treating and Preventing Back and Neck Pain, called appropriately "Back and Neck Health." His name is Dr. Mohammed Biden. He joins me by phone. Mohammed, welcome to the show.
1: Very nice to be with you, Tom. Thanks for having me
4: today. Um, now I'm I'm getting up there in years a little bit, Doctor, and. Uh, I experience a little bit of back pain just getting out of bed in the morning. How common is that, and when is it an issue to see a doctor about?
1: Very, very common, I would say. Um, back, back pain is the number one reason to see a doctor. Neck pain is the number three reason to see a doctor. So between back and neck pain, they're two of the top five reasons why an American would go see their physician. Um, so these are, you know, very common problems. The the things that you're discussing now, most back and neck problems are what we call self-resolving, meaning they get better on their own with just a little bit of time. Often it could be a little, you know, muscle strain or, or something like that that would just improve with some time. The things generally that would make me more concerned, you know, that would maybe recommend to you, you know, you really should talk to your doctor. Those would be things like if you have weakness associated with the pain. So if you have back pain and your ankle's weak or your foot's weak, Uh that's more concerning. Um, if you have, um, uh, muscle pain is generally much more localized. You could point to it, but nerve pain travels. And so if the pain travels, say from the back to the buttock, the thigh, the calf, to the foot. Um, That's what we would call radiculopathy, and that's an indication that the pain is coming from compression on a nerve. That would be a little more concerning. Um, Or uh, if you're having very excruciating pain, such that it's hard to stand, it's hard to work, then, you know, of course, you should see your doctor. So there's there's a few things that, you know, would, would make me think, no, you really should talk to your doctor about this. Uh, but the vast majority of back and neck pain sort of self resolves over time and tends to be localized and more minor
4: is there um, what are the choices i I know a lot of people and over the over the years, and I'm going back a few years on some of these, but I, I've heard about people getting back surgery and then having all kinds of complications with it. How has back surgery changed, and what are some of the options um, other than back surgery for people suffering from back and
1: neck pain? Yeah. yeah, that that's one of the reasons that you know Mayo Clinic and I wanted to put this book together along with, you know, my excellent co-authors. So there's a lot of misconceptions around back pain, back surgery, and exactly as you described. And and I've heard that before. You know, when people get scared, they think, well, if I have to have a back surgery, that really sets me up down the road to do very poorly or to have very negative um, impact. And that's really not true today. So today there is, Uh, very effective treatments for back pain that are um, uh, minimally invasive even robotic surgeries. And those can be very effective and much less um, sort of disruptive on the body than some of the traditional treatments. And so I do think there's a lot of newer, more advanced treatments today that can give people more uh, relief. Uh, in addition, Muhammad, there are generally a lot of misconceptions. Oh, please! Yeah,
4: yeah I, I I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, but I had to jump in there and ask about robotic surgery because yeah. I know there's somebody out there thinking, "Hey, I don't want a robot operating on me." What what <laughs> what is the procedure, and and how does it work, and how has robotics uh, um, really made it uh, optional? Yeah, yeah, and.
1: And to, and that's a, that's a common misconception. Uh, robotic surgery does not mean that the robot does the surgery. It means that the <laughs> robot enhances what the surgeon's doing or helps guide. And so even in a robotic surgery, um, the, you know, the surgeon determines the plan, the surgeon, you know, oversees everything, does everything still, and the robot is just there to sort of enhance the other things that the surgeon would normally be doing. Um, so that, that's, you know, thank you for that. I think that's very important. Um, ro- robotic surgery, when you go into a case that's robotic surgery versus non-robotic surgery, I think the main thing that you would notice if you were a fly on the wall would be the amount of software that is there during the robotic surgery. So we can pre-plan, you know, in a 3D way exactly what we want the instrumentation and the screws to look like Um, in the robotic surgeries, and then the robot uh, enables the uh, implementation of that plan. So you you know how sort of cars, you know, Flint, the famous city of Flint with vehicles, automobiles. So you know how, you know, cars, say, 10, 15 years ago, there really wasn't any or much software in a vehicle. And you go in today, and there's a significant amount of software in any new car that's being made by any automaker. Um and so that addition of software we see that same thing happening into the operating room, and so in many ways um that 's what the uh, robots bring into the o r is that that software that can help better plan and better execute a surgery than without
4: with the use of of that software and and other things that are making their way into the operating room Mohammed things like lasers and uh, and 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 robotic arms and things, are they able to do, is the new equipment able to do pinpoint types of um, maneuvers that are very difficult to do with the human hand?
1: Well, that's one of the advantages, which is the accuracy can be, you know, sub-millimeter with some of the robotic systems. And that's, you know, beyond the accuracy that we would see without them. And so that's one of the advantages of them. And and again, the surgeon, you know, guides, implants, you know, performs everything. But the robots sort of enhance the function of the surgeon, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I got kind of off on a tangent here with uh, robotics, doctor, but um, you had started to mention some other treatments that, that might, I don't know allow people to avoid surgery
1: well there are there are a number of other potential treatments, and um some of those uh, some of those can be uh a number of you know different things so some of those other treatments can be um, uh, for example, physical therapy, massage uh, acupuncture, chiropractic care. Um, hot packs ice packs so there are a number of non-surgical treatments that uh, can be utilized
4: do you recommend trying those things before opting for surgery or in some cases do you know right away when it's diagnosed that this is going to result in surgery
1: There, there are some cases that you know just require surgery I'd say those are the minority of cases Majority of cases, surgery can be avoided, and those non surgical treatments should be tried.
4: And, and um, now the book is, is called Back and Neck Health um, Mayo Clinic Guide to Treating and Preventing Back and Neck Pain. Let's talk a little bit about prevention, and then I want to talk a little bit about the book
1: itself. Um, so, prevention, so prevention broadly, what that would entail would be sort of the most important things to setting yourself up to having a good, healthy back and neck. And so some of those are basic things, good posture, um, being at a, at a good weight where, um, where you're not you know, overly uh, carrying too much weight, The other end of the spectrum, and that's kind of, and and not to
4: not to interrupt you, doctor, but but that idea of uh, getting weight under control is kind of a big deal as we get back to normal from the pandemic. An awful lot of people have been sitting around and and eating. I I've put on COVID pounds, and I'm sure lots of other people have as well.
1: What. one of the things that COVID did is everybody was at home. Um, even if you, uh, you know, many people who had desk jobs, you know, it got a little bit worse because now your desk job, wasn't. you go into the office and do your desk job, now your desk job is you're sitting at home and, um, uh, and doing your desk job. And so I absolutely, I think, uh, and, and to be frank, a lot of the studies that you see where they might say, well, the European health system performs better than the American health system, you know, and has better outcomes and things like that. A lot of that is driven by some of these public health measures like obesity. So in terms of episodic acute care, there's the American health system is the best in the world. There's no there's no question about that. But in terms of management of chronic diseases, preventative care, um, and some of these public health issues like obesity, that's where we don't perform as well as a society and some of that comes down to portion sizes um some of that comes down to we're just more sedentary we drive more we walk less um uh, some of that comes down to you know culturally we just gather for meals a lot uh and not for other things so our gathering points tend to be less activity oriented and more meal oriented and so, a lot of those things do have an impact. And um, you know, when it comes to uh, arthritis of the joints, arthritis of the back, degenerative the disease of the back and neck, you know, those things will, will exacerbate it.
4: And and what about sleep hap- habits and um, and and just the stuff we sleep on? You know, I see those commercials for miracle pillows and all that kind of stuff is 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 there a a recommendation for how best to manage sleep that will help with back and neck pain
1: yep so sleep is a is a good question because it tends to be a little bit of a catch-22 sleep and stress when it comes to back and neck pain and other types of pains and body aches um if you you need, you know, sleep is when your body rejuvenates itself. So you need good, healthy, high-quality sleep um, for your body to rejuvenate itself. If you don't get that, your pain may get exacerbated or may become worse or may not heal as well or as effectively or efficiently as it would otherwise. So it can become a little bit of a catch-22. I'm not sleeping because I'm in pain, and I'm not sleeping therefore my pain's getting worse.
4: More about back and neck health with uh, Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon, Dr. Mohammed Biden, straight ahead.
1: Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program
0: on account of because
1: he's so bouncy.
6: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sonnet More about back program. and neck health
4: with uh, Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon, Dr. Mohammed Biden, straight ahead.
1: In terms of sleep itself, obviously there's good sleep hygiene around the time of sleep, in terms of, you know, avoiding blue screens and things like that. Um, but sleep, sleep posture, so to speak, if you're sleeping on your... generally the way that you want to think about it too is you want neutral position. So if you're sleeping on your back, then your pillow maybe should be a little bit thinner so that you can sleep in a neutral position. If you're sleeping on your side, you probably want a little bit of a thicker pillow so that that you're, again, in that neutral position. Stomach sleeping is sort of the least natural position especially for sustained periods of time. And that, if you are a stomach sleeper, it's probably a good idea to switch to a side or a uh, back sleeper. And then in terms of mattresses, you know, the more firm it is, um, the, the better it is for your back.
4: Now, you, um, how much of back pain is associated with aging and how much of it is...
1: Injury-related. Yeah. So we, we see both. Obviously, you know, trauma can be a common cause of back pain. But more common, you know, and trauma can come in the form of either a fall or a motor vehicle accident. But more common than that is, is exactly what you're saying, which is aging. And as a population ages, you know, we're pushing 90 years of life expectancy for females. 88, 89 years for males, and just like, you know, that increased in the last 100 years, it's going to increase again in the next 100 years. And so um, there will be, you know, entire communities in the United States where the average age is over 70, um, and, and we'll see people living longer and longer, which is a great thing, but we want to make sure that they're living healthy, mobile, and, you know, in a way that's high quality of life. Uh, for, for themselves. And so, degeneration, which is what you're referring to, you know, trauma, the back injury occurs in one setting, and certainly that can cause problems sometimes for years down the road, but the other more common scenario is that slow sort of day-to-day degeneration, and we do see a lot of that. Um, and that that's, you know, also very common, more common, Especially with what we're talking about, which is really arthritis of the back and um, and so that that's that is a very common scenario that sort of slow daily uh, wear and tear that occurs over many decades and so it accumulates and becomes a serious back issue and uh,
4: now there there are, I experience back pain um, most often when i've Exerted myself, moving furniture or um, yard work, or you know something like that, and then the next day <laughs> I climb out of bed. And I'm I'm pretty stiff a good part of the day. Is is that pretty normal? And and are there ways we can go about our tasks that maybe don't put stress on our back as much?
1: Yeah, that what you described you know, happens very commonly. Um and so, you know, you sort of overutilize the muscles and joints of the back and the next day uh they might be stiff or it might take sort of a day or two to readjust. You know, I would say that occurs a lot. Um as you're doing those activities, I think it's important to try to use um, you know, your full body and not just your back. So when you're lifting sort of squatting, using your, your legs and your thighs Um, and, and having, you know, good posture as you're doing those activities is really important as well.
4: And how, how do we, how do we know that we're, um, practicing good posture?
1: Well, that's one of the things that we go over, um, in the book is what that means, you know, how to lift, how to get out of bed. You know, we also provide a lot of the exercises, that, you know, because not everybody is able to go to Mayo Clinic, of course, but we, um, uh, although, you know, our goal is to have it be as accessible as possible, but we just, you know, we're never 100% successful in that. And so um, we provide a lot of the things that we would provide you in terms of specific exercises, specific things to do if you were to come to Mayo Clinic. And so a lot of those things get covered there.
4: And... it was interesting. You mentioned not everybody can come to the Mayo Clinic, and and yet the Mayo Clinic tries to be really accessible. Is a lot of the information that's in the in the book? Um, and of course, I'm I'm looking at a copy of the book, and it's uh, laid out very well with wonderful illustrations and explanations. Um, but are there is a lot of the information available on the Mayo Clinic website?
1: No, it's um, it's it, it's not. It goes really beyond that. The website gives very basic information, okay. but the book goes into much more depth and detail. Um, and then we had you know all of our top experts uh, in the various areas from Mayo, you know, weighing in on the different chapters and and putting them together. So it's it's them because part of it too is we saw so much sort of misinformation and disinformation. That we wanted to put out sort of an authoritative male quality text on the subject and um, and so I think that's what you'll you'll find in in the book
4: what are some of the uh, what is some of the misinformation what what is it that we that we get wrong in and and, uh, and and what how should we be looking at these things more correctly yeah,
1: so um, many people um don't um you know, many people sort of have different conceptions of uh, the causes of back pain and of the best treatments for back pain.
4: Yeah, I want to give you um, a chance to do a little um, myth-busting here.
1: <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, many people, you know, sort of um, uh, have misconceptions around uh, what surgery for back pain means, have misconceptions around, you know, sort of when to see a doctor, when not to. There's uh, around the role of injection, the role of chiropractic, the role of acupuncture. And so a lot of those things, you know, are really uh, important parts of a multimodal pain program. Um, But I think the main thing is, you know, we often uh, see patients who may uh, have, you know, misconceptions around the different treatments for back pain when those treatments should be tried, you know, when when it's important to consider surgery, when it's not. And so some of those are just, you know, important things for uh, people to be aware of. And obviously the most critical thing to know is, you know, the majority of back pain is managed non-operatively. Um, uh, surgery for back pain can be very safe and effective and there's many new ways of doing it. Um, in terms of the non-operative management, if you know, a lot of back pain does self-resolve, but if there's more severe occurrences of uh, back or neck pain, occurrences such that um, uh, people do experience, you know, that nerve-type pain, weakness, um, uh, sort of dysesthesias uh, uh, or very severe pain, um, then those are reasons to, you know, see your doctor and seek medical attention so that those things can be worked up so that if there is a major issue it can be addressed in a timely manner.
4: Now a lot of the common back pain we've been talking about is is often uh, dealing with muscles and joints, but how often does it involve the spine?
1: Right, so um, that's, that's a good question. So as you think about, as you think about the anatomy of the back and neck broadly. There's ligaments, tendons, muscles, joints, uh, nerves, um, and then there's, in the neck, the spinal cord, and in the low back, the fecal sac, which is sort of a sac that holds all the nerve roots together, and then the nerves come out two at a time. Um, so, that, so there's multiple different things. Um, and anatomical components within what we would refer to as the back or the neck. Now, when you experience pain or symptoms, those could be muscle related. They could be um, you know, myofascial related, to the fascia overlying the muscle. They could be uh, ligamentous. They could be uh, joint related. And joint related could mean the facet joints, which there's two of them in the back at every level. Or it could mean the intervertebral disc, like when you hear about a disc herniation or discogenic pain. Um, And, you know, the the problem also could be related to compression on the nerve, which if it's compression of one nerve, we would call that radiculopathy. That's when you get pain, so that goes from your back down the leg. Or it could be compression of multiple nerves. Um, and that could occur either in the neck or in the low back. And that presents a little bit differently as well. You know, in the neck you can have uh loss of balance, uh, weakness, uh, trouble with your hands. Um, uh, and so, uh, Oh, and and in the low back you can have something called uh claudication or a genetic claudication where it's hard to walk. Uh, it's hard to stand straight, but if you lean forward, you feel a little better. And uh, when it's multiple severely compressed nerves, you could have something, you know, in a very extreme scenario called cardiac syndrome. So there's a lot of different causes of um, back and neck pain and a lot of different anatomical components that all usually work together very nicely. But when one of them doesn't, then, you know, it can cause very severe symptoms. So, you know, a lot of those are some of the important things to keep in mind. And that's one of the things, you know, we start off in the book by reviewing sort of basic anatomy, you know, not for physicians, you know, this is for the lay public, but just so that, you know, as, an, as, a, as a patient to be educated on the topic, you really have to understand some of the very basic anatomy in terms of where these pains could come from.
4: Can arthritis attack uh, a person's back or neck?
1: Yeah, so in terms of rheumatoid arthritis, that's less likely. There are certain manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis on the uh, back or neck, Um, but uh, osteo, uh, and and so for example, rheumatoid arthritis could cause things like a, um, like a pannus in the upper uh, neck, which is a growth that compresses the spinal cord, but that's more rare. More commonly is osteoarthritis, which is wear and tear. And within osteoarthritis, um, you, you absolutely can have problems of the back and neck. That's sort of a day-to-day wear and tear uh, problem. And, um, uh, and so degeneration of the back is a form of osteoarthritis.
4: And I'm talking with uh, Dr. Mohammed Biden from the Mayo Clinic about their uh, new Um, Guide to Treating and Preventing Back and Neck Pain called simply Back and Neck Health. Um, Doctor, before we wrap up, you mentioned uh, that there were a number of other doctors who contributed uh, to the material in this book. Did did you want to, I don't know, maybe give a little mention or credit
1: to... Absolutely. So, you know, when Mayo Clinic puts together uh, these books and, and there's multiple, you know, Mayo Clinic guides. This is the first one on Back in and health, but there's multiple guides that Mayo Clinic has to multiple different disease states. So, you know, there, there's the uh, primary editor, which is myself in this case, and then for each chapter, there's a number of our top experts who weigh in on every single subject. And there were several dozen authors on this text, as there are with all uh, Mayo Clinic guides. And the most important thing—we have multiple people not only on the writing, but the reviewing and the looking it over. And the most important part of that is so that as a reader, you know this is the consensus best opinion of the Mayo Clinic. And so um, that's the uh, most important thing. That uh, you know, obviously, someone oversaw the process. Um, but, uh, you know, when it comes down to how the Mayo Clinic works, you know, it's multidisciplinary, comprehensive, <laughs> and uh, doctors working together in teams, and that's how we put the books together as well.
4: Lots of layers of second opinions.
1: Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, and, and, yeah, that's precisely right. And anyone who's been to the Mayo will recognize that sort of structure in these books but anyone who hasn't will you know i think find a lot of really useful information um uh, and and sort of start to see glimpses of of that you know mayo culture come through
4: well, Doctor, thanks for sharing some of your uh, expertise, um, not just in the book, but uh, with me and the listeners this morning. It was uh, a real honor and a privilege to talk with you about this a little bit. I always give guests an opportunity before we wrap up to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start, but um, but did you want to mention maybe the, the Mayo Clinic website as a link to... Lots of uh, good information.
1: Yeah, yeah the Mail Clinic website is always an area to get good information. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think that's important because, especially on the internet, there's so many different sources that are, you know, some of them are good, but some of them are not. And so with Mail, it's always vetted and curated information um, that comes from experts in the area. Um, and so that's good, you know, the, the book is sort of that next level um, and really, you know, high quality information um, that, you know, people, a lot of people find very useful uh, and very relevant. It's the most up to date uh, on the topic. And, um, and obviously, you know, for Mayo, the needs of the patient come first. So we put these together when we find that there's a gap in the literature. So, when we find there's a gap in patient knowledge, we put these together so that patients can benefit from it. And um, I can tell now when a patients actually read it when they come to see me because <laughs> they're, they're just so educated on the topic uh, and, and they know so much about it. Um, so, it, it's, you know, but there's, you know, Mayo and, and other good medical centers, um, you know, the information from there you can trust. Um, but a lot of information out there, especially on the Internet, is, is uncurated, unverified. So I, I would just be wary of some of the other uh, websites and things like that.
4: Well, Dr. Biden, thanks uh, again, and um, keep up the good work.
1: It's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me today. All right. Take care. That
4: was Dr. Mohammed Biden. MD, uh, neurosurgeon with the uh, Mayo Clinic, and um, s- took sort of the lead on the development uh, of a book from the Mayo Clinic called Back and Neck Health Mayo Clinic's Guide to Treating and Preventing Back and Neck Pain. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Mm-hmm. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is uh, from the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA. He is a campaigner. They have a, a new campaign um, called Superior Fish Being Beings, and that's not... Uh, uh, fish-human hybrids in Lake Superior. It's something completely different, but here to talk about that and a whole bunch more from PETA is Jonathan Horn. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me here. Okay, so superior fish beings. Um, are Are they fish? Are they
5: humans? What are they? (laughs) superior Superior fish beings is a new campaign by PETA. PETA has been fighting for fish for decades but now we want to challenge people's preconceived notions of who fish are by pointing out some of their remarkable capabilities. Fish are really no different from cats or dogs or other animals that humans may relate to a little easier um, when it comes to their capacity to feel pain and suffer and we can each help end their suffering by simply choosing not to eat them. So we're hoping to showcase some of their capabilities and also um, showcase some of the amazing, healthy, vegan seafood options that are out there um, to make uh, this place a little more compassionate for our fellow uh, Earthlings, including fish.
4: Well, you know, it's, it, it, this is interesting, and I um, am curious about this because, For years, people were saying, "Don't eat meat; eat fish instead," um, especially where red meat was concerned. And all animals in nature are part of a food chain. How is it that that we think they should not be, that humans should not be sitting on top of that chain?
5: So um, the first thing you mentioned was uh, that you were encouraged to eat fish instead of eating red meat, Right. Um, but there's no reason that we have to eat fish because we can get everything we need to be healthy and survive on a balanced whole food plant-based vegan diet. Fish are known to have um, toxic heavy metals in them like mercury. That's why pregnant women are discouraged from eating fish during pregnancy. They have dioxins plastic compounds, and many other pollutants. So instead of eating fish, we can get all of the same omega-3s in things like flax seeds, walnuts, chia seeds, hemp seeds. um, Soybeans have omega-3s in them. Uh, And there's even vegan supplements available for omega-3s. So you can get all of those benefits from the omega-3s that you would from fish from these other plant sources and then you have none of the cruelty that's involved with catching and harming fish, and none of those toxic chemicals that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, is
4: are we are we giving up on cleaning up the things, <laughs> the toxins that are getting into the fish?
5: Absolutely not. We have to keep working to maintain our environment. But do you know that one of the biggest sources of plastics in the ocean is actually leftover fishing material, these big trawling nets from, really? from the commercial fishing industry. Yes, it's a, I think it's a, at least 50% of all of the um, garbage that's found in the ocean is actually left over from the, the fishing industry. So, so that's it's just another the reason fish, why we shouldn't be.
4: It's from the fishing itself and not, as, as we typically believe, just you know human, humans using the oceans as dumping grounds.
5: That's part of it, too, absolutely. There's many different industries that are dumping into the oceans, but one of them happens to be the fishing industry. And you, you imagine these massive nets. I mean, they catch fish by the thousands in these nets. Um, and, in fact, a lot of the, the animals that are caught in these nets are non-target animals that include things like sea turtles, fish. Um, they include birds, uh, whales, dolphins, even sharks and and these animals are are not even eaten they're just caught in these nets and killed along with with the fish that they intend to catch so not only is it wasteful and produces a ton of pollution but it's also wiping out our fish we're we're killing fish faster than they're able to reproduce and some experts predict that we'll have fishless oceans by 2050 if we don't make massive changes
4: really that's sooner than i would have guessed um but then I, I, I still wonder, well, the, the question I was going to ask is, do you know offhand, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Jonathan, but do you know offhand how many species of fish are currently endangered?
5: I don't know the exact number. I do know that there are many on that list and that if we continue, we will start seeing mass extinction of fish. Um, and globally, every single year, we estimate that there's between one and three trillion, that's T, trillion fish are caught in the wild and killed every single year. This doesn't even include the billions of fish that are raised and killed on fish farms, the fish that are killed for sport, that are sold in the pet industry or used in laboratory experiments. These are just the fish that are caught by the fishing industry every single year that's not sustainable hi this is Joe more with jonathan horn from
4: Peta. The Straight to the Tom ahead. Sumner program.
3: while we've been staying safe at home scientists have been on a journey the destination a COVID 19 vaccine this journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses scientists built from there with months of research and development and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.
0: Ray. Hi
4: there, folks. This
6: is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office.
0: I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. do badudap,
6: Start your weekend right.
4: Go to eleven Fridays on the Tom Sumner program.
2: Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. or call the Foot River Watershed Coalition at 810 767 6490
5: The Time
1: Summer Program.
4: Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Time Summer Program. More with Jonathan Horn from PETA straight ahead.
5: There's so many surprising facts about fish that uh, I think people would really be surprised to learn. First of all, fish are very highly intelligent and highly social individuals. They possess communication abilities, remarkable intelligence. They're part of complex social structures. Uh, They enjoy companionship, they develop relationships with each other, and they're even known to show affection to one another by gently rubbing up against each other. Um, Some fish create art, use tools. There's even some species of fish that sing together in morning choruses at dawn and dusk, the way that songbirds would do. Uh, Some of the ways that fish communicate with each other include using various sounds, scents, electrical pulses, and different motions. And most importantly, fish can feel pain and suffer. They have a brain. They have a central nervous system, just like any other animal. And so they they definitely are able to suffer. And every animal deserves protection from abuse, regardless of what they look like. And that that includes fish. And PETA.org has so much more information on fish. There's so many um, delicious, healthy vegan recipes there. We're showcasing different vegan products that can replace seafood. Um, So I encourage everyone to go to PETA.org to learn more.
4: I was going to ask you about some of those. You know, whenever I talk to to people from PETA and we talk about alternatives to um, other animals, land animals, um, cows and pigs and chickens and so on. And and I grew up in the Midwest, Jonathan, and, and to me, if It wasn't a meal unless there was meat and potato on my plate. And it was difficult for me to consider passing on a steak for a piece of cod. And, and now you're suggesting that that's probably not good either. What are some alternatives to just substituting fish for meat?
5: Well, I grew up in the Midwest as well, just outside Chicago. And my mom is actually from Italy, off the boat from Italy. And seafood was a big part of her diet in Italy before she came over. And then obviously meat was a big part of my diet growing up here in the Midwest. And yet both my parents are also vegan as well as myself. And we found these vegan replacements are, are fantastic. So some some examples of uh, some vegan seafood would include Gardein's Golden fishless fillets, which are one of my favorites. Uh, You can make filet of fish sandwiches with them. You can fry them up with some chips. They even make things like soy shrimp, which tastes just like the shrimp we pull from the ocean. It's fantastic. It tastes great if if you're making different Asian dishes, like a Um, stir-fry. I even recently learned they have something called cavi art with a T, which is made from seaweed instead of fish eggs. So these products are very clever at replacing the flavors and the protein and all of the nutrients that you can get. Uh, and it does it without the cruelty that's involved to the animals. And as I mentioned earlier, none of those toxic metals and, and microplastics that are found in much of the, the sea life that we we catch and eat.
4: If there was a sudden shift, um, you know, by consumers Toward these these vegan alternatives to meat and fish, um, could could the companies generate enough, quickly enough to to replace uh, meat and fish in in let's say the American diet?
5: The trend to towards vegan products has blown up over the last few years. Just to, just in the last couple of years, there's been a six hundred percent increase in people who are choosing to eat vegan you probably noticed that at grocery stores across the country the shelves are just filling with vegan products there's most fast food restaurants uh, offer a, a vegan option and that wasn't the case even just a few years ago so we're seeing a switch in consumer trend towards these vegan products and pretty much every major uh food company is is working on or already has a, a vegan burger or a vegan brat or you know other vegan products so they're they're trying to keep up with this trend and it's not going away this is the, this is the way things are moving and they're they're going to adapt to that it, it's just that's how the supply and demand market works
4: and and restaurants are offering more and more alternatives
5: Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many restaurants. I'm I'm in the Chicago area and I'd say the vast majority of restaurants they had they have labeled vegan options and even if they don't they they can veganize it very easily across the country.
4: You know, it's funny uh, when you talk about the cruelty to fish, uh, for example. I have never been able to eat fish from a, a buffet or that was served with a head on it. That always just creeped me out. I've seen it done yeah. <laughs> for display reasons. Just like I, I'm uncomfortable, you know, going to um, a big barbecue and, and seeing a pig being roasted on a pit you know, with the apple in its mouth. If it looks like what it used to be, it's a complete turnoff to me.
5: And you're not alone in that. I've heard that so many times. And that's why PETA is really trying to have people make that connection between what they're eating and where it came from. These are sentient beings. These are beings that develop families, that have the ability to to feel love and emotion and to suffer. and And the question is, if we don't have to hurt them, if we don't have to harm them to survive, if it's not necessary, why do it? especially when there's like I said it's so easy to go vegan these days there's so many products that can replace all of the health that can replace all of the flavors the textures it, there's so many creative products out there you have to ask yourself why why would i do this to another individual who can suffer and so peta's here to not only uh encourage people to go vegan but we're also making it as easy as possible by giving a whole list of vegan products, we have recipes, we've got everything you need. It's a one-stop shop to help you live a more compassionate life towards other beings. What, what do you say to people that
4: raise the issue that lots of fish eat other fish and lots of land animals eat other land animals? Some of these some of these uh, animals and, and fish are going to be eaten anyway. Why not eat them? Do you know what I mean so by fish,
5: that? Yeah, absolutely. Fish and other land animals, they don't have a choice in what they eat to survive. They have to eat if they're a, a carnivore or you know, they eat other animals. that That's the way of life. That's the way they have to survive. For humans, it's different because we know. It's not just an opinion now. Harvard has come out and said that you can live all stages of life, including pre Uh, pregnancy and old age on a vegan diet. So Harvard Health has said it. Uh, The American Dietetics Association has recognized that a vegan diet is the healthiest or one of the healthiest diets available. So it's not necessary for us the way it it is, for example, a, a lion to eat meat. So they don't have a choice in the suffering they cause. And they also don't have the same moral capacity that a human has to make that decision for themselves of whether they want to or not, to. They, they have to, to survive. We do not. And that's the difference. We can live a happy, healthy, compassionate life by choosing not to eat them. And, and you're right. There is so much suffering in nature. That's not something we have control over, but we can ask ourselves, do we want to be a part of more suffering? It's so hard for animals to survive as it is. Why make life more difficult for them when we don't have to?
4: This is this is absolutely fascinating, Jonathan, and I appreciate you uh, spending time with me to talk about this. Um, one of the things that I always like to do is give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Um, and I know PETA has a website. Is that the best place to to start to learn more about? Fish and and alternatives to fish.
5: Absolutely, PETA. That's P E T A dot org. My my journey to going from eating animals to being totally hundred percent vegan started with help from PETA three years ago. Before I started working for PETA, Um, I got a vegan starter kit in the mail. I had ordered one from their website, and I was reading constantly about, well, why can't I have eggs? And then I learned about the egg industry. Well, what's wrong with eating fish? And then I learned about the fishing industry and how we're fishing our oceans out of existence. So I kept going back to PETA's page. And then finally, I ordered a vegan starter kit, which is a little packet they send in the mail that has vegan recipes. It talks about the cruelty, the sustainability, uh, a list of vegan products. And I, I would refer to that constantly as I, as I started switching over from eating animals to a vegan diet. So I know firsthand how helpful PETA can be. And and that website has all the information you need to to get started today. So, again, we invite everyone to go to PETA, P-E-T-A, dot org.
4: Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for spending this time with me, and keep up the good work.
5: Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. All right. Take care. Bye.
4: That was uh, Jonathan Horn. He is uh, a campaigner for... People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA. And uh, they're, they're, they've launched a uh, campaign called uh, Save Superior Fish Being," And you can check it out on their website. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight
3: ahead. I know of a place
5: where you never get harmed a magical
0: place with magical charms indoors indoors
1: indoors Take it away!
0: program.com
6: You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know?
4: Go on, go on, get out of here.